is Spade Spoon Soul, a podcast about all the ways that food intersects with our faith from seed to spade to spoon. Hi, I'm Jennifer Baskerville Barrows. I am the Episcopal Bishop of the Diocese of Indianapolis, and I am here in downtown Indy on Monument Circle on the land of the Potawatomi and the Kickapoo, and I am delighted to welcome you here today. And I'm Brian Sellers Peterson, and I'm coming to you from Roslyn, Washington, on the land of the, the Yakima Nation, and um, also known for where Northern Exposure was filmed. So in a sense, I'm coming to you from Sicily, Alaska as well. But today we are talking with Norman Wurzba, who's the Gilbert T. Road Distinguished Emphasis, Professor of Christian Theology at Duke Divinity School and a senior fellow at the Keenan Institute for Ethics at Duke. He's the author um, and editor of about 16 books. Um, and I think a lot of our listeners are familiar with Norman's work. And, you know, we could start running a list of all our listeners' favorites, uh, you know, hits from uh, Norman's library. Uh, but um, we're really gonna, you know, drill down a little bit on uh, his hot off the press uh, book, Agrarian Spirit, Cultivating Faith, Community, and the Land. This is all the good things. And so um, for those who don't know Norman's work, we're gonna just, you have to excuse some of us who have a sense that we would not even have this podcast if we weren't for some of the groundwork that Norman's writings have been sowing and um, seeding for us um, for a long time. But this latest book connecting all of these pieces together around food, theology, the land. And so our question is to begin, we ask this question all the time, is where are you rooted? We know where you are serving as a professor, but where are you rooted? It can be place, community, where are you grounded? Yeah, that's a great question. It's so good to be with you, Brian and Jennifer. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so yeah, the question of rootedness is so important to me because we're living in a time where so many people are not rooted because of mobility or whatever reason. And you know, when I think about being rooted, I think about places where I feel that the nurture that's been given to me is really strong. And I got a memory then of all the many ways that I've been blessed, nurtured, helped by the place. And I think for me, there's there's several, but I think one I'll mention now is, is a cottage that my wife's family's had in the hills and woods of New Hampshire. And we've been going there as a family for now over 30 years. And what I love about that place is the memories that we have formed there, memories where our children have experienced new things, memories of, of swimming and hiking, memories of making meals, memories of, of building the cottage and, and knowing that this cottage is a place where we as a family have felt really supported, a place where we have seen so much beauty, a place where we can look out at at the lake, we can look out at the woods, we can look out at things in the cottage, the furniture, and, and see reflected back to us love. And, and that's so important, I think, for people to have in their lives, places where they know that they've been nurtured, they've been cared for, they've been supported. And, and that's something that I think is really important for us to help each other do. Um, there's a thousand different ways we could go today, but and we're eager really to talk to you about your new book, Agrarian Spirit, 
cultivating faith community in the land. But before we uh, really take a deep dive into the back, we would like to know what is the Wurzba definition of agrarian, agrarianism? Sure. You know, what is your definition? Yeah, I think when people hear the word agrarian, they think, okay, farmers, it's about farmers, it's for farmers, it's about farming realities. And and I'm sympathetic to that sort of first nod because I grew up farming and I love farming and I love farmers. I love the work that they do. I think it's really great work to do. But we're obviously living in a world that is much more urban than it has been ever in the history of humanity. I mean, that's a that's a new thing. And we're moving quickly to a time when roughly... 75 to 80% of the world's population will be living in cities. So unless you think agrarianism is completely irrelevant, you need a definition of agrarian that is more encompassing of urban people and urban spaces. And the way I like to put it is an agrarian is someone who understands that we need to work and cultivate the health of land and people at the same time. And that's really important to stress this at the same time, because we know too many economies and political systems in which people are encouraged to flourish at the expense of the land. And by the land, what I mean is you know, not just fields, I mean, I mean soils, I mean waterways, I mean even oceans, right? Because these are the nurturing context in which people live. And so an agrarian is someone who understands that you can't have human health apart from land and plant and animal and water health and cleanliness. And so you have to work for both. And so the shortest definition is an agrarian is someone who nurtures the places that nurture us. Wow, I love that definition because it it really does make it expansive. I mean, I, I drive through Indiana and there is, what I say to people here is that we don't go up, we go out. There's so much land and a lot of it is cultivated for soybeans and corn and things like that. And some of them are farms that feed us. Right. But um, living, I'm looking around a sea of buildings right now from where I'm, I'm doing this podcast and it seems about as far away as anything. And so this notion that agrarianism is not something that's only for the soybean farmers. It's right, right. We can all touch base with this. Yeah. And we need to think about urban neighborhoods, right? Because our homes, our neighborhoods, do we have parks? Do we have, you know, boulevards? Do we have places for people to gather, right? All of these can be nurturing places, if we take care of them, right? School grounds, they're totally in the agrarian purview because kids being raised on school grounds, school parks, school classrooms, we need to take care of those facilities because they're taking care of our kids, whether we know it or not. And they're either doing a good job or they're doing a bad job. And so we have to pay attention to infrastructure. We have to pay attention to health systems, educational systems, because all of those are the nurturing context for our lives. And so, yeah, the, the image of cultivation, I think, is really key here because we, we cultivate neighborhoods all the time when we build them. And the question is, how are we doing when we <laughs> cultivate and make our neighborhoods? Norman, you triggered me uh, because one of the things I've been thinking a lot about, you mentioned school grounds. I've been thinking a lot about churchyards and church parking lots. Oh, yeah. Um, and we 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 uh, host a um, we I mean, Good News Gardens with the Episcopal Church, which is a movement that's involved in, I guess we're involved in agrarianism. Uh, but the, the one type of post that gets so much reaction is when I post something about turf lawns. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that we need to rethink 
uh, because, you know, we grow so much turf, um, this monoculture, and, um, you know, we, we, we need to kind of give it back uh, to the creator in different ways. And, you know, instead of, you know, we need to all be a part of no mo may, but maybe we need to be part of no mo every, every month. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you just triggered me, man, when you brought up schools. Because Yeah, I thought there was going to be a sermon coming, Brian. There should be one, right? Because yeah. <laughs> think about it, right? Faith institutions, Jews, Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, you name it, they all have land. And religious organizations are some of the biggest landowners in the world. And, you know, I'm thinking about the fact that right now land prices have just soared. 20 to $25,000 per acre. You can farm that land for the rest of your life and never pay that off, right? And so we've got young people, well, not just young people, but all sorts of people who want to grow food. They want to grow nutritious food. They want to grow flowers. They want to grow orchards, but they can't afford land. It's just way too expensive. And so the question would be whether or not faith institutions, churches, synagogues, what have you, can make available the land that they have. A lot of it's in cities where land prices are even higher than 25,000 acre. What if they were to make this land available to people who wanna cultivate it? Grow food for the community, grow flowers for the community, create green spaces that are places of, of rest, right? There's so many ways that, that churches can use the properties that they have to, to contribute to the healing of our communities healing on multiple levels, right? In in many ways, you know, we need to have a reorientation of our theology of land um, in the church or our our ecclesiology. Right. We need to stop thinking of it as a church asset, and we need to always look at it as a community asset. Because I'm having all these radical thoughts, because, because I spend a lot of my time as bishop overseeing a lot of land with yes. where our, our churches are. And I'm in a, a conversation that happens every single week now about what to do with churches that are diminishing and perhaps leaving their property, closing, deciding to have ministry other places. And the disposition of buildings and church properties is, I get emails about that every single day. And I'm getting invited or I'm learning about conferences where these conversations are happening every month of the year now. What do we do about church property? So I'm listening to you talk, Norman. I'm thinking, I'm just, as someone who thinks about this all of the time, I do, I'm having a whole new thought about what is the blessing of these properties for the community? It's something that we say we're about. And, And instead of having conversations only about leaving perhaps our church properties and building affordable housing, this conversation makes me think, well, what if, church properties that have no longer have a worshiping community on them become open space, become urban farmlands. What if there's a whole new way of thinking about it? Because the phrase you also gave to us today about having spaces where love is reflected back, Mm -hmm. you know, where what is the ongoing ability of these communities and properties to be spaces where love is reflected back in this agrarian definition that you laid out. And so my mind is kind of, I got to think about it a little bit because it's a whole new way of thinking about 
what space is for, what land is for, what it what it's for after we've left it. Yeah. And there's a whole sea of possibilities that kind of reunites us back to the earth in a way that might be really powerful for the communities in which these properties are located. Yeah, and what you're raising, I think, in a really powerful way is what's the church's mission, right? What is it? And And sometimes we're not very clear about that. We don't communicate. We don't talk about it with each other. What are we trying to do? with the, the congregation that we are, with the buildings that we occupy, that we use every weekend, maybe. And, and that's, I think, a, a huge question. And that, I think, takes us back to something that I'm trying to hit in agrarian spirit, which is to think that we've thought about church mission in far too narrow a term, which means we're thinking about saving people. And I'm all about saving people, but I'm not about just saving souls, right? We got to be talking about the health and the flourishing of bodies, right? The bodies of people who are now languishing, not just because they're not getting good food or good health care, they're languishing because they're living in places where they don't see reflected back the love of God for them, right? Places that communicate, this is a place of nurture for you. This is a place of belonging for you, right? And that's a, that's a big shift that has to happen in the minds of people. But it's, I think, entirely rooted in Scripture when we think about how, from the beginning, God asked people to take care of the garden, not as a punishment, but as a way of participating in God's gardening ways with the world, world ways of being that nurture, ways that protect, ways that celebrate our shared life together. And so to think about church properties as places where people can experience their being loved, their being protected, their being celebrated. And how do you do that? Well, you do it by growing food together. You do it by growing flowers together. You do it by working together. And, and you know, that I think that's, that's the tough one, because when you live in a world where so many of us basically shop through existence, because we can buy everything we need to live, the idea that we might need to work to provide for things that we need, that we might need to work to make sure that, that we share the gifts of this world in ways that are wholesome and nutritious, you know, that can be tough. And so when we do the work together as communities, that makes it a lot more doable than just having, you know, one or two people feel like they're having to be in the garden every night growing and weeding so that a few people can eat. Right. And we undervalue those who do that work for us. So that oh, we yeah. can, you know, I mean, all of that. This requires a whole rethinking of how a whole different worldview, literally, you know, because I'm thinking about the damage that infrastructure often does, highways and things. And we don't see love reflected back in our infrastructure. But what no, we, we don't. Right. I mean, we see financial right? interest in our infrastructure. Right. How, yeah. how do we make this as cheaply as possible? And then we don't think about infrastructure for community, for people. We think of infrastructure for what? The quick movement of goods for mobility purposes, right? We don't think about it in terms of how can we make sure that people, when they're in these places, are happy, right? How would we have to redesign housing and neighborhoods and schools? I mean, our schools look more and more like prisons. And now we're talking about putting military officers at our schools to make it further a frightening place, for children. I mean, this is crazy. What if we were to design schools to say, kids, you are here because we love you. We want to cherish you. And we're going to do that in the way we feed you, in the way we build our buildings that you can learn optimally. Right? That would be such a shift in the way we think. 
All right. And so I wonder, I mean, this is a, these are not, some of these are new ideas, but this is a, there has been, again, these are been thoughts on the margins because folks have been, I mean, I got into the love of architecture because of the idea that you could actually build a world that would have those kinds of values in it. But I, I've also had served communities like in Syracuse where there was, uh, there is a high school that was constructed without windows. Yeah. Oh my. <laughs> and they put them in, I think in the early aughts. Can you imagine going to a school that has not one view outside, even if it's an urban scene, no light, natural light? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, there's a lot of need to rethink our approach. Oh, to hey, hey, Jennifer, I went yeah. to that school. I'm not going to date myself, but um, I was in the first class in a brand new school in Mankato, Minnesota, that had no windows. And guess what they have today? They have windows. Yeah. Um, because, you know, <laughs> but I'm sure that teachers, we can't control these kids. They well, need right. And you built a prison, right? Like, so it's such a low bar. We now have windows, right? But what yeah. we're talking about is rethinking from the literal ground up, how do we build spaces, create spaces, nurture spaces where people feel like humans who are loved and valued? Yeah. And, and, you know, I think for children, it's especially important, right? Children are almost born with this capacity to take endless wonder in the world around them, in bees, in flowers, in worms. I mean, just they have an almost intuitive sense that this is a world that's made for them to explore. And what we do when we put them in these prison-like schools is we say, no, you are completely cut off from the world that takes care of you, that provides your oxygen the water you drink, the food you eat, the fiber you need to put clothing on yourself, the materials you need to build homes. We're going to completely cut that off from your experience. And then we're going to say, why are you feeling lonely? Why are you feeling anxious? Why do you despair about the world that you're in? Well, we've not taught them to love the world. And we've done it by, first of all, blocking their access to the world. And so it's so important to get kids, you know, in fields, in forests, in stream beds, and, you know, let them experience the world. Let them see. You know, um, so my granddaughter goes to the Washington Outdoor School. It's a preschool. They don't have a building. Yeah. You know, and they meet year round, you know, uh, snow, rain. Yeah. like a postman. And, um, you know, I'm worried she's going to start kindergarten. Yeah. She's going to go to a brick and mortar school. And, uh, yeah, um, I think it, it comes back on the community now to make sure, um, that most of her learning happens outside, even though she's in that building. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that we could learn some lessons uh, from the outdoor school in yeah. terms of our churches, you know, and I'm so grateful for this burgeoning movement of wild church mm-hmm. uh, that, that is happening, um, that, yeah. you know, church is outside. Yeah. And I think there's, a, even when you become an adult, there's this sense that being outside Think about here, forest bathing is just one example, or think about how when life gets really hard, people want to go out into the woods and have a walk, or just be in a field or walk on the ocean beach, right? To to feel the expansiveness of the world, to have a sense, a, a fully sensorial experience, right? A touch and smell and tasting of a world that is all hospitable to our presence because we've created so many environments in which we don't feel 
that we're welcomed or that we're going to be nurtured, right? So we find the world to be more and more inhospitable. And given what we now know about how climate change is affecting people all around the world, we're not just finding the world inhospitable, we're finding it uninhabitable, right? This is, this is, this is weighing so heavily on our young people. I teach a course right now at Duke, which is open to university college students all around the, the disciplines. And it's called, let's talk about climate change. And they're communicating to us the kind of anxiety and depression they feel, knowing that they're going into a world, they're imagining their future in a world where so many places, they're not going to be able to live because it'll be too hot. They'll be too prone to flooding or heat or fire or, or you name it. And you know, this is part of how we in our waywardness have created a world which is becoming less and less hospitable and less and less habitable. And I'm thinking faith institutions, they've got a major role to play, first of all, in protesting this kind of economy, this kind of political formation, but then also in becoming the, the very sites where we create the spaces of welcome. The, the spaces of hospitality. And, and we're going to have to do that more and more. And I think coming back to this question of church mission, we know that so many people are very skeptical of churches because we know how much damage they have done historically. But imagine what it would be for churches to create literal, right, physical places of welcome and nurture. What would that do to the perception of what the ministry of the church is? Because in those places that we create of health and flourishing and beauty, we're telling people that this is a world that God loves you through the world that God makes. And, and how, do you, how do you say, I don't want anything to do with love? I don't know many people who, who, who will say, I don't want anything to do with love. They don't want to do much with places that they sense are divisive or hostile or angry or whatever. But they want, they want to experience a community where they know they're going to be loved and taken care of. So, Norm, can you tell me, I mean, I, I, you know, as I say about you being such a source of essential reading on matters of food and faith and theology, and when, when I was in the parish, like, there was just a lot of delving into some of your, we would sort of chunk out some of your work and talk about it mm. because we were committed to being a community that nurtured mind, body, and soul. And we yeah. tore part of our parking lot to create some ability to grow food. I mean, there was all of that. And yet this book, Agrarian Spirits, different. I mean, it's, it's um, part of perhaps the evolution of your writing and thought, but I, I'm wondering like, why did you write this now? You know, Bill McKibben says this is the book that is most grounding and yeah. um, the most grounded book that you that he's read in ages. And, yeah. you know, I, I love Bill McKibben, so I take that for real. So, you know, you, you, you name climate change and the conversations you're having. But tell us why you wrote this book. With these yeah, stories. well, I'm, I'm constantly trying to find ways to help people reconnect with the places of their lives. And you know, the food book was one way to do that because, you know, you, you try to sell a book on environment and people right away, they got all sorts of, you know, assumptions. They got all kinds of reasons to resist because, you know, it's complicated. We can get into that. But food is something that most people, they do regularly and they do in ways that are, are, are good. I know that some people, you know, food is a hard issue. Not, you know, we could talk about that. But food is the great integrator. It's the place where in our eating, we connect directly, right, to soil, to plants, to animals, and so forth. 
And so that, that became a great way, I think, to open up conversations for people who otherwise would have resisted talking about land. And so in this book, I really wanted to talk about spiritual practices because insofar as you're a follower of, of Jesus, you pray. You have to, to sort of look at the world. You have to figure out what your position in the world is going to be. And so these spiritual practices that I'm trying to develop around prayer and perception and, and generosity and not just gratitude and, and hopefulness, these become ways that I think people are asking about this. They're wondering, right? How do we best pray in a world that seems just a total mess? How do we, how do we have hope when we see that the signs of, of the future are, are so grim? Right? How do we experience gratitude and generosity? How do, how do we move into this world with greater humility? Because we're sensing how much the arrogance of, you know, especially, you know, powerful white men, how that arrogance has created a world of, of great diminishment and, and degradation. So I thought these would be ways that people could maybe think about these practices in some fresh ways. Because as you know, there's, there's no end to books about spiritual advice, <laughs> you know, how to do X, Y, and Z better and all that sort of stuff. And, and I'm, I'm not interested in, you know, competing with those books. I just wanted to say, what does a grounded spirituality look like? One that takes seriously our embodiment, our need of each other, and our need of our places, our communities, our neighborhoods, our farm fields, our forests, our watersheds. We need all these things. How can we have a kind of spirituality that takes better account of these needs that we have? Thank you. I wish we could give it out to members of Congress, <laughs> honestly, because, yeah. you know, it, just think about, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why our world looks the way it does. It's legislated and there are investments made and yeah. what we invest in. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a great point that you make, Jennifer. My daughter, she's a, she works with the Environmental Defense Fund in Washington, D.C., so she's constantly in conversation with, you know, the leading politicians and their staffers and with business leaders. And, and I think that there is among the, at least some of them, a growing awareness that we've created a mess and we're not exactly sure how we're going to get out of the mess. And, you know, for a lot of reasons, you know, people feel the need to tow the party line or they feel the need to sort of be beholden to, to stockholders and shareholders and but I think there's a growing awareness among people that we can't continue with business as usual. And the question then is, how are you going to shift course? What do you need to be able to shift course? Because unless you're prepared to say, I don't care about the future of my children or my grandchildren, you have to be thinking about these matters. And I hope a book like Agrarian Spirit can recall people to fundamental realities, right? Our need for nurture, our need for community our need for beauty, our need for compassion and love and mercy. Um, you know, if, if the book can help people think more carefully about some of those things, that would make me really glad. Well, I can't help but thinking about Tim Ryan, who's running for Senate um, in Ohio, and his little book on mindfulness. Mm. Um, and I think that maybe what we should be doing is those of you who are listening are going to buy your book. They need to buy two books and send one to their member of Congress, um, and especially those of our listeners who have a personal relationship with mm. a policymaker. 
um, you know, to get it into their hands. And, may, and, you know, probably they won't read it, but, you know, maybe it'll lay around the office and one of their staffers uh, will pick it up. But I think this is the kind of book that we need to get into people's hands, mm. get them to start to think about these important matters. You know, one, one thing I'd like to ask people when I talk with them about these kinds of things is take a minute and realize that in 2022, so many people are living a standard of life that would be the envy of kings and queens 100 years ago. We have more stuff. We have cell phones that just make the world available at the you know swipe of a thumb. And we're still not happy. And the question is why? With all the stuff, with all the opportunities, with the world just at your fingertips, literally, why are we not happy? Why do we keep thinking we have to have more? And I think when you get to that point where you start asking those kinds of questions, it brings you back to the question, what really matters? Truly, what really matters? What do we really need? Not what do we want? What have we allowed media marketers to tell us we should want? But what do we really need? And I think what we what we get down to is, is we need to experience love. We need to experience nurture. And it's not just a hug. You know, I'm all for hugs. Hugs are great. But we need to be able to feed each other. We need to be able to build communities for each other that nurture each other. We need, we need good housing. We need good health care. And, and for those sorts of things, we know what we need to do. It's whether or not we can turn off all of the distractions that are telling us we need all this other stuff. And that means, you know, we got to pay really careful attention to how the systems we've developed are hurting so many people, right? I mean, race, you know, the connection between race and agriculture is a big question mm -hmm. that we could, we could spend a lot of time on. We need to think about the discrimination against all sorts of groups of people, people we don't even bother to know or get to know but we're quite happy to write them off as condemned or what have you. These are serious problems. And, you know, the, 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 the starting point, I think, for a better future is, is for us to sort of put aside some of these distractions, get to know our neighbors, get to know the people that we've always sort of kept at the margins because they're, you know, we're afraid of them. We don't understand them. We've allowed ourselves to be caught up within hate and vilification campaigns and start to come together as people around our neighborhoods, around the places of our shared life, and say, what are we going to do to nurture good relationships with each other and with our communities and with our people and our places, rather? That's going to be important work going forward. And have we learned out of the pandemic, with all of its horrific death and devastation, that there were glimpses and maybe it was a privileged glimpse, but there was a sense in which people for a moment in this country in America, like looked at their neighbors because they were outside but yeah. the place where you could be, be safely, where even distanced, we were seeing each other. We were walking right. the streets where it was safe to do so. We were connecting in different ways because we knew we needed to yep. out of this desperation of wanting to survive the pandemic. But even though the COVID-19 pandemic seems like it's beginning to recede, 
the pandemics of being disconnected and disconnected from each other and from creation is still very present. And yeah. I just think we don't want to forget those lessons. You know, we need well, to- Well, and I think that's, what, that's one of the things that COVID really did is it helped us see our need and it helped us see how so many people are deprived of the, the ability to satisfy that need, right? Yes, yes, yes. Exactly. So many people are stuck in apartments where there's no yard, there's no there's no green space, right? And we know how this affects certain communities, certain races of people disproportionately, right? That they can't experience these things because of zoning, of built environment regulations, about financial investment that these are serious obstacles to people experiencing the kinds of things they need to flourish and be well. And, you know, COVID could be that time where people can say, what's really important? What should we now work toward? I hope that we don't say, let's just try to get back to normal as quickly as possible because normal is no good for us, so many people. And we don't want that. So how do we think about redesigning our cities, our neighborhoods, so that they're more equitable, more inclusive, and that they create a sense of belonging for everybody, not just for a few people. I think that's some of the really important work going forward. And I think, I mean, your book, I, mean, I, I, I can't wait to sit down with, uh, makes me remember the, remember the catchphrase from the 1980s, I know I'm dating myself, but Gen X are here, the sort of act local, was it act locally, think globally. Mm-hmm. And so the things that you're naming, you know, this need to sort of ground ourselves in a particular place as ge- geography mm-hmm. um, and people in that geography, but also being mindful that the things that we think we need that might be excess has implications for the globe. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the, the clothes that we dispose of finding themselves in landfills and in, in the global south um batteries and electronic residue like there's mm. the, the implications for flourishing and being grounded in a land in a place that loves you is not just for us here it's for everyone and that means yeah. we have to be be casting our gaze a bit so that agrarian spirit is not just for those who have means but it's for the ways in which we make that possible for everybody across the globe yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things that agrarians like Wendell Berry have taught us mm. that are so important is always expand the scope of your consideration. Yeah, that's right. It's just such a great principle to try to live by. It's hard, right? Mm. Because I think a lot of people are feeling overwhelmed because there's so many sources of information coming to us from all over the place. And we say, I can't expand the scope of my consideration. But it's absolutely important for us to do because when we make decisions, the decisions never just affect ourselves, right? They, they affect so many people. And, and this is where food, I think, is a great sort of window into asking these kinds of questions. Because when you think about a meal that you're going to sit down to eat, you have to then think about, well, where was it grown? Who grew it? How were they being treated, right? Is the food that we're going to eat, is that the kind of food that honors the lives of, of farm workers? Does it honor the cooks? Does it honor, you know, all the people and all the lives that intersect with it? It's overwhelming to try to think about all those, but when you're eating good food, it's also a way of saying a genuine amen, because, you know, if this is food that you know was raised in a way that honors the creatures, that honors God, you can make your meal a celebration. And that's a wonderful thing. Yeah, Norman, I'd love to hear a story of uh, one a community that you've encountered 
yeah. that's living this agrarian spirit. Yeah. Um, I bet you uh, come up against them a lot and you will even more and more as this book uh, gets out there, but tell us a story. Sure. Um, so there, there's all sorts of congregations that I'm meeting now that are making food ministries much more central to the work that they do because as I've heard people say who have no interest in church, it's hard to argue against a garden, right? Because gardens are these kinds of places. And, and what, what I often hear people say is that when they work with each other in a garden, they begin to see how the stereotypes or the assumptions they had about the people who, you know, they maybe have seen, but they've never come into close contact with, they begin to understand how they were mistaken. And they begin to understand that, you know, they have a shared life with each other and that the, the other who seems so foreign and maybe even a bit intimidating or frightening wasn't that that in fact you could sit down together and enjoy a meal with them and by hearing their stories begin to see that you know i don't need to be afraid of you that we could actually literally join hands in the working together but also in the eating together and then find out that when we come together we're better we're stronger and, and just an example about how this can work out in a variety of ways. I, I remember a pastor once at a retreat that I had uh, been leading came up to me and he said, you know, I hate to tell you this, but I think I'm bored and I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit that. And he said, and the worst is I think my whole congregation's bored. And I said, well, I don't know exactly where you're coming from because I don't know your context, but have you ever thought about just talking about the boredom that you're feeling in yourself and in your church? Just talk about it with your congregation. And he said, oh, I'd be too afraid to do that because I think that if I admitted my boredom, I would be, you know, the butt of the blame from my congregation. I said, well, maybe, maybe, but maybe not. Maybe you just need to create a space for you and your community to come together and talk about what you love, what you care about. And I said, if you do it, let me know what happens. So I'm sitting in my office and several months later, I get a phone call and the voice on the other end of the line says, I did it. And I had no idea who he's, who's talking to me, of course. So I said, uh, who are you and what exactly did you do? And he said, I'm the pastor that met you in Pittsburgh several months ago, remember? And I said, yeah, I do, sort of. And he said, I'm the one that told you I'm bored. Oh yeah, now I know who you are. And then he said, we did what you suggested. We took a Sunday morning and we said, let's not do the regular worship service. Everyone bring something to eat and to share. And let's just talk with each other about what we love, what we care about. And he said, it's the best thing we could have done because we realized that what we were doing in our church, it wasn't satisfying anybody anymore. We decided to do it years ago. We don't know why we're doing it anymore. We don't need to do it, but we're afraid to let it go. And as they sat around and talked, they said, really what we want is to be able to be in the presence of each other, share life with each other. And so that's what we're going to do now. We're going to commit to not just doing the, the pro forma stuff that we've always done. We're going to break the traditional mold that we've inherited and that we feel bound to. And instead... We're going to have genuine fellowship. 
and it was beautiful. And so, you know, I have not talked with him since then about how it's been going down the road, but he said, I didn't need to be afraid because I could see that my congregation, they were hungry to be with each other and to celebrate food together. And it's a great story, I think. Wow, it's a resurrection story of a kind. I love that. It is, right? And, you know, I hear about this over and over again where congregations that they're, they're sort of lost. They don't know why they're doing what they're doing anymore. And so to have a chance for a sort of reset that grows out of a conversation with each other uh, can be a source of revitalization. And they may discover that there are new ministries, right? I know of a church that most of the older people, they're wondering, what are we going to do? We got no young people around. We don't feel like we're part of the community. They decided they were going to host a farmer's market. And suddenly the place has come alive again because now people are coming to the parking lot they're buying food and they're wondering, well, what, what are you all doing? And these older people, they're, I mean, they're not all coming into the church on Sunday mornings, but the older people feel like they're doing something for the community. And that matters. It's really great. So I feel like we are needing to wrap up and I can't stand the idea of having to close out this conversation. It's been so deep and thought-provoking. Um, and so I just... I know we'll have all kinds of links in the show notes to where to where to get the book, Green Spirit. And I I just think it might be a real um, source of change and inspiration for us um, for in the church and, and beyond. I really hope that it is that. And I'm, I'm glad to know that you are teaching on these things at Duke and helping the next generation find some sources of hope and and engagement and, you know, perhaps a sense that they might be a part of helping to make their future something better than we, it might otherwise be. So thank you for your work and your writing and inspiration. Thanks so much, Jennifer and Brian, for having me on your show. It's been great talking with you. Well, that's a wrap. You know what you can do right away is you can Google um, Agrarian Spirit, University of Notre Dame Press, and um, you know that'll take you right there so you can order the book today get to. Um, and uh, thanks, uh, Norman, uh, for doing this um, with us. And if you want to know more about our podcast and some of the episodes we've had in the past, go to our Facebook page, which is Spade Spoon Soul, or email us at uh, Spade Spoon Soul Podcast at gmail.com. As always, we want to thank Norman for being with us today. We want to thank our producer, Derek Weston, who is multi-talented as pastor, podcaster, community organizer, farmer, and um, for all the ways he makes this podcast sound as good as it does. And for Jay Sidebotham, who has done our art, and Ryan Lee for the music that opens and closes our show. So until next time, we hope you will find ways to connect your soul, your spade or spoon, or both. Take care, everybody.